Looking for gear, collectibles, houseware, and more from your favorite pop culture franchises? We got you covered! Loot Crate offers a range of geek and gamer items for less than $20 a month. Want to bring your loot to the next level? Get a bigger box with even bigger loot with Loot Crate DX. If you're more the type to wear your geeky heart on your sleeve, then Lootware, the monthly wearables and accessories subscription, is what you're looking for. Make sure to head to lootcrate.com writers and enter the code writers uh, to save off of any new subscription. We're almost there, you guys. 300 episodes. And to celebrate, on November 6th, I'm doing a big, big panel here in Los Angeles at Largo at the Coronet. Uh, again, November 6th, Carlton Cuse, Mike Shore, Damon Lindelof, Marta Kaufman, Hart Hansen, Jane Esmondson, Doug Petrie, David Fury, Liz Tiglar, Bridget Carpenter, Andrew Miller, and more. So many people, uh, there are not enough chairs at Largo. so I have to go out and rent them. So please come. Come celebrate 300 episodes of the Writers Panel with me, with these old pals. Some new pals will be there. Uh, That is on November 6th. Before that, I have a couple of events coming in October. Uh, On October 14th and 15th, I'll be at NerdCon Stories 2016 in Minneapolis, Minnesota, doing a bunch of different things. Click on my face on their website, and uh, you'll find out the things I'm doing, but there's Acker and I are doing a little chat, Uh, I'm on a panel about adaptation, and I'm doing a big live writer's panel with John Green, who wrote The Fault in Our Stars, and uh, a bunch of other really great books. I'm I'm a longtime fan of his. On Sunday, October 30th, I'll be at EW Pop Fest, that's Entertainment Weekly's Pop Fest in Los Angeles, which has an insane lineup, and I can't believe they invited me to be part of it. I'm going to be doing a live panel with a very special guest that I will announce soon. Uh, Check that out. And then, as I said, November 6th is the writer's panel live at Largo at the Coronet 300th episode celebration. All of the information for all of these can be found at writerspanel.tumblr.com. And follow me on Twitter. I'll be talking about them uh, as we get close to them and as they happen. Uh, That's at Ben Blacker on Twitter. Hope to see you at one of these, or all of these, live events. Now entering Nerdist.com. Today's episode was recorded at ATX Television Fest. Were you there? It was the best, right? Were you not there? Why weren't you there? Season 6 badges are now on sale. That's for next year. You don't want to miss this. They've already got some amazing things cooking. Go to ATXFestival.com. Get your Season 6 badges there. Uh, Also, they're putting up uh, video versions of all of the podcasts that I'll be releasing and all of the panels and stuff, uh, some that I won't be releasing. Go to atelevisionexperience.com, atelevisionexperience.com, and you can see the video version of this and uh, many other panels and events that happened at ATX this year. Hope to see you in 2017.
I'm Jarrett Weisselman. I work for BuzzFeed. Uh, and I am... Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so excited about this panel because, like most of you, the only thing I like more than actually being in a relationship myself is watching other people be in a relationship on television. Um, they tend to go better for those people. Uh, so we thought it would be really fun to get some of the uh, brightest minds in television to talk about love. Maybe we can even get some applicable tips for our lives. Who knows? Uh, so please help me welcome these wonderful writers to the stage. First, Hart Hansen. <laughs> Whatever you would like, sir. Uh, next up, Jenny Snyder, Ehrman. Liz Tigler. <laughs> and last but not least, Carter Covington. All right. <laughs> that was amazing. That was adorable. Um, guys, thank you so much for being here. Very excited to talk about all things love with you today. I want to start with this. Um, there are so many couples on television that I grew up loving. Uh, pretty much it really started for me. I think there was a show, there's so many young people in here, but it was called Sisters, and it was with Celia Ward. Yes, so Teddy and Falcon, man. Like, Falconer and Teddy were just where my soul started when the car exploded. Spoiler alert, I still am haunted by it to this day. So I would love to go down the line. Liz, I'll start with you. Who is sort of like the first television couple you remember having strong feelings about? Um, Bo and Carly, Days of Our Lives. <laughs> My friend Jenny knows that she was Jack and Jennifer. I was, I was Bo and Carly, and um, I had very strong feelings to the point where in high school, I thought that to have sex, you needed to buy like a one piece kind of slip corset to go under your clothes. Like, I thought, when you're a lady, that's what you wear. You you wear a one-piece corset thing under your doctor's uniform. So when Bo Brady, like, ravages you in the break room, you're, like, ready to go in the doctor's sleep room. Jenny, what about you? I think, I'm trying to think. I have very, I feel like I block out most of <laughs> Things that happened before, like five years ago. But um, uh, I th I'm pretty sure my first one was uh, Brenda and Dylan. I think that was a big yeah, um, yeah. Night swimming. <laughs> I am so old. Um, the first, I, I was very worried and very invested in Frank Ferrillo on um, Hill Street Blues, a show probably no, and, and I, now I've forgotten the name of the DA that he was in love with. Uh, captain Frank, you know, a, a, a cop captain and, and a DA. The tension was sexual and political and, and they sat bolt upright. You learned what you learned. I learned that the precursor to sex was to sit bolt upright in bed. <laughs> And have a conversation without looking at each other. <laughs> I'm the opposite. Mine was uh, Buffy and Angel. When they had sex and his soul left and then she had to kill him. <laughs> it is still so upsetting. <laughs> it is still so upsetting to this day. Um, Yes, that's right. You know, there's a lot of elements that go into building a relationship on screen, and there's a lot of ways we can go about doing that. And Hart, I want to start with you. Uh, I struggle to think of a show that has slow played a relationship more than Bones. I mean, 
you didn't even get these people together until many, many seasons into the run of the show. I mean, when you created Bones, did you envision that this was going to be part of its DNA in the way it is now? Um, Yes and no. Uh, When we were casting the show, um, I I can't tell you how different David Boreanaz and Emily Deschanel from, are from each other as human beings. And, but they have this, on screen, they have this remarkable sexual chemistry. Off screen, they are so sibling-like that it's a little creepy to watch them uh, uh, go back and forth. Um, so my, we cast them for that sexual chemistry, but I was willing to see if we were going to do a show in which the male and female lead did not ever hook up. Mm-hmm. Um, th- that you could do a thing where ma- a man and a woman could work together, be very intimate, and not have a sexual not relationship. Not possible. Well, <laughs> everyone I work with. Quickly enough. <laughs> quick, quickly enough, we found out that you could not waste this um, sexual chemistry. But we also found out that we could. We were gonna. We were going to put it off until people were screaming, which is is what we did. I mean, what have you found sort of, and, you know, I'll start with you on this, Har. I mean, what have you found is sort of the amount of time you can drag something like that out until people really get heated about it? Six seasons. <laughs> now, people were getting heated in season five. And that's six were, network seasons. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah, like... Yeah. 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 It's like long. Yeah. 110 episodes or something. Um, um, you... You throw every obstacle that an audience will believe between them, mm-hmm. and eventually you're going, we can't. And it, we so fortunate. Um, we knew, okay, we're going to have to get them together. We can't put this off anymore. And then Emily came and whispered in my ear, uh, I'm pregnant. And I went, I know what to do. <laughs> because I think the part of a relationship that is really boring and makes me want to kill people is when they are happy and they are, they are brand new and they're in love and you know, running through fields and walking in the rain and on the beach. I just kill them. So we managed to avoid that by having her instantly be pregnant. So they had another thing to keep up that relationship. I mean, what do you guys think about the amount of time a couple can be happy on a television show before something ruins it? I mean, how long is too long? Can you actually write a relationship that just endures and is not fraught with problems and the problems exist outside that? I mean, Friday Night Lights did it. You know, they made it clear, I think, in in speaking about that show that Coach and Tammy were going to always be fine. Nobody was going to have an affair. Their marriage wasn't going to be in crisis. They were a happily married couple that certainly went through trials and tribulations like any other married couple. Um, and they had things to overcome, but that their marriage was going to stay intact. So I think you 100% can do it. Um, I think it's challenging, uh, but, you know... It's possible. I mean, I think about it, though, you know, Dawson's Creek. I remember 13 seasons, you know, the first 13 episodes, it was like Dawson and Joey are, like, kissing in the window. And we come back for season two, and we're like, well, oops. <laughs> like, you know, and it became eventually, you know, the Joey and Pacey show in a lot of ways. And that was the couple that you really invested in because who you thought you were going to invest in got together so quickly. So I think it depends. I mean, Friday Night Lights was unique in that you were coming into a solid marriage, and I think you wanted to see that remain solid. Mm -hmm. You know, Dawson's, I'm just using these two examples, um, 
was, uh, you know, it was a, you know, girl down the creek who no one noticed, you know, pining for the boy, you know, across the creek that, um, you know, was James Vanderbeek. So um, uh, that was a different setup. Yeah. I, I think it's also, you know, I think Bones is, had, had a nice... Uh, procedural element that could distract you from mm-hmm. from that, and when shows are built around romance, it's much harder to uh, to sort of string things along because that's why people are tuning in. So you do get kind of in this. Let's have them keep dating other people, and it's like if you put another person in there, right. I'm going to kill you. Well, I was going to ask. You know, obviously, faking it was about a lot of things, but at its core, it was a show about romance in this relationship. I mean, what surprised you about exactly what you're talking about? Sort of building a show on a relationship, and then sort of having to push and pull and make that malleable to make the series endure. Uh, I think the hardest thing is to keep the journey fresh. Um, and to keep it from, you know, have we had this push-pull in past episodes? How do, we, how do we throw up an obstacle that feels real to the characters and not just, like, stalling? And, you know, it's, it's, it's a tricky balance. I'm sure some fans would say we didn't do it that great, and other fans would say we did it amazing. You know, I think um, con- the funny thing to me is fans often want the thing that's going to be the most boring. You know, they're like, right. just put them together right now and let them be happy and run through the weeds. And it's like, well, that's not fun. <laughs> and then what do our episodes look like to you once we've done that? It's fair. I understand. Um, but, I w- you know, I'd love to talk a little bit more about that because I think uh, you and Liz have written a lot about sort of the discovery of love and sort of those early burgeoning love experiences. Uh, Carter, what excites you as a writer about putting that experience on screen? I think that um, I, I think that those little moments, like the time your hands brush, or the like, the time you uh, were stressed about something and they showed up on your doorstep with flowers, like just those little moments um, are are our fantasy. I mean, they're really our fantasy and it's like reconnecting with, I've been married now, I'm with my husband for 10 years, but I still miss the rush of first love. You know, I think everybody remembers that first time that endorphin flow hit them and that moment that they, you know, all they can think about is this other person. And, you know, uh, so it's fun to relive it in a TV show instead of with an affair. Wise choice. Wise choice. <laughs> what about for you, Liz? I mean, it's interesting. It's like, you know, as as you write, I think, in a weird way, I've, I've noticed as kind of a sideways answer, but, like, the the love stories that I've been inclined to write about lately, I mean, it probably started with Life Unexpected, which, in some ways, Life Unexpected, it was so much about, you know, these these two parents who, I mean, I don't know if anyone knows the premise, but it was, like, two parents who gave, got pregnant in high school, didn't like each other, gave up their kid to be adopted, and the, and the kid, Britt Robertson, never got adopted, and then through a TV contrivance gets put back in their custody. So it was a lot about this love story between Kate and Baze, these two main characters. Um, but it was, and that was so fun to write, but at some point, it kind of became, and I know this isn't love and romance in like any kind of sexual way, obviously, but it became more like a love story between this group as a family. Mm. And I think what I've noticed in my own writing is how the idea, of in, in a way, love and romance, again, not sex, but love and romance has fanned out to include other things. And I've just noticed as I've kind of 
chosen shows or been fortunate enough to get on shows lately, you know, Bates Motel. That is a love story between Norman and Norma. It is disturbing, but that is a love story. That is a romantic story. It's not sexual, mostly. Um, but it certainly has romantic elements. Um, casual, the relationship between Valerie and Alex, that is a love story. It's not a sexual story. It's not incest, but it is a love story. And these these two people are soulmates. They happen to be brother and sister. And so I think it's been interesting um, how... I don't know. I've gravitated. I, I'm so into love and romance, but I've definitely gravitated in expanding out what that means and also looking sub, in a subversive way at it and, a, and in your question of being sustainable, looking at relationships that really can't be. Norman and Norma can never get together, rom, you know, truly <laughs> romantic. They can never be each other's person in the way that, like, we kind of all aspire to have that. That's the perfect obstacle to build a series on. Same with Alex and Valerie. Um, so there's something really fun about writing that because you're always trying to think of obstacles. And I think I've just happened to gravitate toward really big obstacles. I mean, I was just watching a panel with Sarah Shapiro, and obviously I'm a big fan of that show because of Shiri, and um, the relationship between Rachel and Quinn, that is a love story. Um, and I think that it's it's fun to explore kind of non-sexual love and romance, too. Absolutely. I mean, Jenny, I would argue that the relationship between the V and Wave of women on your show is one of the best romance love stories on television story. right now. It, it's our biggest love story, yeah. always, and always has been, and we say it over and over, that's where the wish fulfillment is, mm -hmm. that, you know, your family is always there, that, you know, you're going to fight, but you're there, and, uh, you know, mm -hmm. Coach uh, Tammy, and, you know, like, they're not going to break up. They're going to have fights, right. but... And, and that's always been the central romance. And whenever people go and team Jane or team Michael, team Raphael, I'm like, just team Jane, just want her to be happy, you yeah, know. Right. Um, and, and we've really centered the show around that relationship. And, and not that we don't have all these big romantic tropes and we play into them. And, but a lot of the show has been um, deconstructing Jane's idea of what romance is mm -hmm. and what a fairy tale ending is and what it should look like. And I think... Um, that as she became a mother and started to realize, it, she's realized that the family is really, you know, as long as she has that, she's okay. And I like putting that into the world. Absolutely. Um, I mean, that said, there is one of the classic romance elements in your show. Oh, yes. Of the love triangle, which we are, <laughs> could rattle them all off all day. Um, we could just talk about like a whole panel about Buffy, Spike, and Angel, I feel like. <laughs> I just think that. But we won't because we like each other now, and we should keep it that way. Um, but I mean, you know, what I think has been really interesting about what Jane has done with the love triangle element is that... I can't really remember a time when everyone could agree that everyone in the love triangle is a good person, and it's just at times one is better than the other. There's always an element of like, well, he's the worst, or she's mm -hmm. terrible. And like for me, Michael Jane and Raphael are all great people who kind of all deserve each other, and you're like, maybe I'm just like a thruple. <laughs> That's what we would do on casual. <laughs> I mean, Get them you, all together. Let's just do it. I mean, can you talk a little bit about sort of writing a love triangle where there's no antagonist in that sort of traditional sense? I mean, that was our goal, was to, you know... I was just thinking back six seasons without getting them together. After I wrote on a show that was canceled, I thought, oh, God, I waited till episode 13 for them to get together. It's not going to happen again. we got to move. <laughs> so, um, like, you know... Uh, we we did that early on in, in Jane, and I really wanted people to invest in Raphael and in Jane, thinking that the fantasy of of this this couldn't just happen with no with 
for no reason. I'm, I'm accidentally artificially inseminated, and this is my uh, guy I had a crush on, like, meant to be. What does that mean? Um, and then, you know, after that happened, we wanted the, the you know, the pedals to fall off and, and, and to... Literally. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and, and also to um, remind her of what she had with Michael before, so we had to rely a lot on flashbacks and stuff to rem- remind people, without taking away from Raphael, how can we build up this other choice? Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a lot of the challenges that it, at any moment, if I felt that the room was tilting too far one way, I would kind of double down on the other without making someone cheat right. or someone lie or someone, you know. Um, so it, that was the struggle, was, was to how, how can we make a balanced love triangle? And I think the answer is that half the people will stop watching when she <laughs> chooses one person. But, um, but you know, the, uh, I think it makes it more complicated and more interesting. And also, I couldn't have Jane fall in love with a real asshole because what does that say about her, right. you know? And you want her, her to be a person who you trust and who you want to go along the journey with. And if she's after somebody who's a jerk, then she loses her credibility. Yeah. Um, so that was that. That's a big part of the calculus. I, I mean, that is an interesting thing you bring up because if you're writing love interests for your leads, you also have to think about what that person says about your main character in the long run. I mean, what are some difficulties or things you've discovered about writing through doing that? Well, we we went through this. Uh, uh, I had to tell every actor who came in to play a love interest of either of our leads, I'm so sorry what you're about to go through <laughs> on um, uh, media, on social media. You're going to be attacked as a human being and, because the Bones fans are very, very passionate. Um, and we were very careful to do the best we could to do the exact same thing, which is the, the women that Booth um, fell for, there were two, one was a stranger we hadn't met before in the show, and the other one became a, a regular, someone from the past. Both of them were vilified when they first got there, and then after a while they were loved. Brennan, we had a slightly easier time because she's so um, um, logical and rational that she could fall for a guy who looked good on paper. Important that he looked good on paper to the um, audience as well. One of the tricks we did was um, there was an actor who looks a lot like David Boreanaz. Um, uh, Eddie, Eddie, Eddie McClintock. Dead ringer. Yes. Yes, we did. We thought because then someone could point. Uh, for one thing, also Eddie McClintock. He's his own guy. He radiates goodness. He's a sweetheart. And Booth, David Boreanaz, does not radiate sweetheart. He radiates lots of other things. So, um, uh, and so the I'll say he does. We, we, <laughs> uh, we did do that on purpose. That everyone in the show, aside from her, would say, "You've got Booth." Easy booth, easy nice booth, um, and and that worked very well for us. But um, and then um, uh, poor Catherine Winnick, who now plays a Viking warrior on Vikings, uh, was on, and I swear she got the toughness to be a Viking warrior by being on Bones and being uh, uh, Booth's uh, love interest. Because oh my God, um, she was the character who he actually proposed to her, and she said no, and the fans oh. <laughs> How dare you say no? And I, and then you want to say, what would you have done if I'd said? And he said yes, and they got married on the show. Right. That would have been over. But um, you know, you cause these problems, so you have to uh, cure them. But, but th- thank you for noticing that. Oh, I, I thought it was like a casting mistake. 
So I was like, wait. That's not good. <laughs> that you thought that. We failed in some way. Yes, yeah. Yeah. But it does bring up, I, I think, casting in romance plot lines is so important. And one thing we did on Faking It was we had a chemistry read for anyone who was coming in. Um, to to potentially be a love interest for any of our lead characters. Um, and I know a lot of showrunners who don't believe in chemistry reads, but I'm a big believer that if you don't try it out in a small room with really bad lighting and, you know, sitting up close and seeing if you You're can see it. the drama now. Yeah, just the like the, the, just the connection, like, you know, that... Uh, <laughs> you, you, you kids go into that room like that show. Oh, this sounds horrible. Okay, I would like to make clear. Lots of other people were there. It wasn't just me. Everyone's um, dressed. Oh, my gosh. Um, but but I, it's just... It is a weird thing about our business where some people click and you want to watch it and you're like, that people are going to believe that. And other people, it's just like, ooh, no. Two beautiful people, but that's not working. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. Have you have any of you been in situations, and you do not need to name them, but you are welcome to, uh, <laughs> where that has happened, where you've basically sort of invested in actors who have not had that, and you're sort of like, well, now I either I have to fix this problem that we've created through the casting of these roles. Yes. <laughs> yes. I don't know if it's been so much. I don't know. I, the situation I think of isn't necessarily like they were both so great but just didn't have chemistry. It was like one just wasn't that great. So I don't know what chemistry he might have had with anybody. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's hard, you know. It's not good. I mean, is that just a situation where you're like, and he fell off a cliff? <laughs> like, I mean, I mean how, do you, how, how do you sort of I know, go about rectifying? Well, I don't know. I, when I, the first pilot I ever did was, was a pilot called Split Decision, and Mark Perry came on as showrunner, and we would, like, sit watching dailies in Video Village, and he would be like, um, he, would, he would say, there's a minivan in episode two. We never made it to episode two. He'd be like, there's a minivan. It's going off a cliff. This person is in it. And then, and then the whole shoot, he would be like, the minivan is getting fuller. I like that. I was like, maybe we need to be in the minivan. I'm like, we did this. Um, I think uh, another really interesting thing that you get to do through writing for television when you write about love is you get to write love at all different ages. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think almost all of you have written both sort of the discovery of love and also sort of older love. Uh, what do you enjoy about writing for each? I'll, I mean, I'll start Old with Old people sex. No. <laughs> <laughs> if it is, you can say it. This is a safe space. No, no. Um, but yeah, be kind. Yeah, no. <laughs> I mean, look, there's something wonderful about, I think, writing for teenagers that, that we've kind of spoken about on various panels, which anytime you're writing for somebody experiencing a first, um, any kind of first, not even necessarily the obvious first, I think that there's something so exciting about that and so visceral, and it gives an opportunity for older people watching to kind of relive their firsts. Um, but there is something about writing about kind of more mature relationships too and I have to say you know right now on Casual Michaela Watkins character is just turning 40 Um, she you know is divorced a mother and kind of getting back out into the dating world now and it's really really fun to write and it might be because I'm 40 I'm a mom you know there there are things that I certainly relate to about it Um, but it is so much more or maybe not more but equally 
uncomfortable in the best way. And when she has victories, it feels so great. And when it's awful, it just feels so awful. And, um, and it's, it's, it's just as satisfying, you know, and sometimes even more because, um, I don't know, maybe it's just, it's, it's my age, you know? Yeah. Cause you have three generations of women dating on your show. We do. I, I like, I like writing women in general and I like writing all different ages and uh, in in the first season I talked to Yvonne who plays Alba and I we have so much story that we're getting through but we're coming to your love story don't worry we're coming Um, and once uh, we did part of it this year um, that that sort of reawakened her uh, in in the dating scene it was really she just talked to me about how how much it meant to her to see um, an older woman uh, not just there to, you know, help other people in their Facilitate lives. Facilitate the younger side. Exactly. And, and uh, that it was really meaningful to her that she got, and uh, she had this one look on her face when she got this flower and she came into, she was telling her family she was um, going to get married and he was bad luck. It didn't work out. But, um, <laughs> but uh, she just, she walked in and she had this look that like her eyes went up and she looked it the editors kept freezing and he kept saying look at that face look at that face and it was that same that feeling of mm-hmm. of uh being in love and I loved watching her play it, and I loved watching her have this um relationship and even though it didn't work out realized that that is something that she wanted in her life um so it's something that we're going to continue to do and I feel like I'm I guess you know for the same reasons Liz said that that you know I'm older and I it, relationships are interesting, not just at the beginning. They're you know they're interesting as you go through them, and you always have to recalibrate things. And um, you know, and I like having these three generations to play uh, different versions of love through. For, for you, I mean, in that conversation, what did you find interesting about introducing sort of a baby into a relationship in such a formative stage? Uh, we got to skip um, uh, all the uh, lovey-dovey crap. Um, and goes, they had a legitimate thing to tussle over. How are we, two people who um, uh, have, have had sex once and had a baby, how, what, are we, what does this mean to us and what does it mean to the child? Mm-hmm. Um, so we had this, we, we got to make actually more romantic conflict between them because they were held together. Um, you know, their characters was she would be a fierce mother and he would be an absolutely uh, doting. Uh, father, and that it, it, that was fun for me. I mean, I, I've been I've been married for a long time, uh, really like thirty years, and um, so that's interesting to me. And when I was in Canada, um, I came down uh, to the states from Canada in '98. By ten years before that, when I was writing in Canada, I wrote, "I'm going to say fifty coming of age teenager." Stories, one ofs, and episodes of things. I can no longer make a teenage boy's orgasm interesting. There was one day when I said, "That's it." I actually got a, a, a Gemini for this. Uh, a, a kid got kicked in the nuts, and he had a um, wet dream the next night and thought that the girl who kicked him in the nuts had set off his puberty, which meant they were in love forever. I was getting this award for this, and I went, that's it. That is it. No more teenage. Uh, and then I, I came down here, and one of the first things I got to write in America was Tyne Daly falling in love with Richard Crenna. Like, Amazing. 
<laughs> whiplash. Um, and that was just, um, I, had to, I had to jump forward um, for that one, and I'd been jumping back. Um, and then, and then um, it's been really fun knowing people in their teens and 20s, I'm in my 50s, their uh, stories of uh, sex and romance are radically different yeah, from mm-hmm. what I went through in the John Hughes mm-hmm. era of sex. Um, and so it might get interesting again, although the sex itself probably won't be. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just going to say, I, I've been thinking about it more recently about um, male-female approaching romance because... Every show I've worked on uh, has been really through a female perspective, um, except Greek. Greek was the only show that really had kind of a strong woohoo. And Greek was so fun to write because you got to tell romance through the eyes of male characters, and I think that's really rare. And I wish there was more of that. I mean, you look at the composition of this panel, of our audience, it's mostly female. And like, I think so often shows that have romance at its core are branded a woman show, you know, or, and, and I think that it's so much broader than that. And I, and so I, I've really enjoyed the times where I've gotten to, I am a man. So it's nice to go through that perspective. I'm, I'm curious also, uh, speaking of Greek and faking it, were you writing about love and romance for younger characters? Have you ever been surprised at sort of what you can't do through a younger character that you feel like you might be able to do if a character was older? I think you can, you can, I, we would often take our own experiences and kind of time travel them back and say, what is the college version of this relationship issue? I think you can often take the DNA of a, an adult issue, and it usually makes the story even more resonant. You know? So that's often how we worked in, writers, in the writer's room. We'd talk not only about our college experience, but what's going on right now? What, you, what are the frustrations you're having with your spouse? And you know, I I find writers' rooms are often like giant therapy sessions with like <laughs> seven other people or ten other people. Well, again, you do not need to say what it is, but you are welcome to. I'm curious what you think are the mistakes other writers tend to make when they write love stories. Well, I, I didn't I didn't think about it much that until I saw a catastrophe and realized this was the first time I'd seen somebody really do a brilliant job at middle aged. Yeah. Um, hooking up. 100%. I was like, I just went, oh, and uh, I wasn't remembering back looking at that, and I wasn't wondering what it's going to be like to be mm-hmm. 80 and, and <laughs> gulping back Cialis or something. <laughs> um, there were two people. Uh, the fact that that show treated middle-aged people, we see their bodies, we see yeah. their, their appetites are not much different from when you're t- teenagers, but, you know, they're old. Um, and that that has made me tough on a lot of uh, middle-aged um, uh, sex now. And then I think you can always tell, and apologies to anyone, I think you can often tell when writers are writing kids if they don't have any. Oh. Um, uh, and that, I, that sounds snottier than I mean. Uh, but it's like you, sometimes kids are saying, gee, sis, let's go out and play in the back. And I get that. They do not have children. <laughs> <laughs> Sis is going to bite him. Sis. Um, I wandered slightly off topic there. Someone saved me. Are there any things that you guys have found sort of stick out in your mind as when you see it, you're just like, that's not what you're supposed to do. Well, you know, you know what sticks out in my mind? I'm a, I'm a humongous, this is going to sound weird, but I'm, I mean, this part's like sound weird. I'm a humongous Homeland fan. I love Homeland and I loved season one. 
I obviously, like everybody, thought they should have killed Brody at the end of season one. Um, but then he lingered around for season two. Okay, fine. But then he lingered around for season three. And then in season two and three, it became... And P.S., I love four and five. I think Homeland is back. But... Season two and three, it like became this weird love story between Carrie and Brody, and they were like, it was like all of a sudden they were like schmoopy soulmates, and I'm like, is this a joke? I'm like, I mean, she's gonna like blow him up or something, right? Like they're not actually. Are we as the audience supposed to actually believe they feel this way? Like really? And I just felt so um, almost not manipulated, but like I I felt like this weird love story was kind of being forced down our throats just because you were excited about their relationship in season one, but it was never a lo- I don't know. So anyway. It wasn't earned. Yeah, it, No, it wasn't earned. It felt so false. Yeah. Um, and I mean, again, I think Homeland is brilliant, and I, I think it was probably a product of just being in, I mean, I think like anything, you these two characters had so much chemistry, and you're so invested in them that it's like it, it's like that investment somehow changed the tenor and tone of the show to suddenly make it seem like they were soulmates, and you're like, what are we watching? Like, I literally feel like some schmoopy, like, and I love Josh Radin, but I feel like some, like, great Josh Radin song is going to come on, and it's going to be like, it's a brand new day. And I'm kind of like, what? Is this Carrie and Brody? Like, blow someone up now. One of you needs to not walk out of here alive. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Or kill Dana. <laughs> All things that did happen. Um, Jenny? I just want you to be on every panel I'm on for the rest of my life, right? I don't, should she not have I'm a podcast? I'm just going to come to your living room heart. The biz with Liz. The biz with Liz. There you go. I'll be your first guest. Yeah, I mean, I think just, uh, I don't, you know, when they're, when, they're um, when someone's too villainous, to me, that, that's always the worst thing. Or when you're like, I don't know what this character would see in them. Mm-hmm. Kind of, those, that's what sticks in, in my crop, because I'm like, it's just a reflection back on this person who I'm supposed to be following. And, you know, and, and so I just want to know what the redeeming thing is. Not like when, when a character that you love is just like mooning after a douchebag, it's... Uh, you know, it's. It, mm-hmm. That's such a good title for something. Mooney <laughs> <laughs> after douchebag. I heard him. I mean, we all have, but like then at a certain point, you're, you I grow have up. Never never. <laughs> but like, you know, at a certain point, you, you don't. You stop. Yeah, you pull it together. So um, I think that that is always to me where I'm like, you don't want just the obstacle to just be so contrived. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I agree. Great. <laughs> um, well, I would love to open it up to you guys for some questions. If Yeah, we'll start right here. Yeah, no, something that I often find frustrating as a viewer, um, particularly with love stories, is when something off-screen happens that kind of, like, sh- just totally shifts the, what you're able to do. And I just wanted to know a little bit from your perspective as writers, like, how off-screen stuff can sometimes get in the way of a story that you might want to tell and... Like you mean like behind the scenes yes. drama? Yes. Yes. Like they're dating and they live together, but then they broke up. Or, or they anything. refuse to be in a scene together. <laughs> so let's talk about Castle. What? <laughs> or any show. Or any show at all. But it's an excellent question because, you know, a little bit like you were saying with Emily, where the, her pregnancy, which is so wonderful, sort of gave birth. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to do it. I was like down the road and I couldn't walk it back. To a wonderful storyline for you, I, also, the flip side is also true, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I would say that, that often the, the 
my experience has been actors who have the most chemistry don't always have the most chemistry off screen, and it is very um, it is a very magical thing that you capture that uh, that you then have to kind of manage. And I think uh, it is. For fans, I know the how how much they want to believe that the world that is created is the real world, and so you have to kind of hide it because you don't want to share that with people. You know, you don't want to burst that bubble for the viewers. So, it's definitely you know I appreciate what Hart said on the fan. I'm like you don't get to know everything, and that's just the way TV works. So that you enjoy the TV show. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. but it's like it's like the Twilight dilemma. Like that's exactly what I think you're they should be together because it's Bella and Edward, but really it's just Kristen and Rob, and there's a lot of stuff right, going right, on. right. And then, or it's like the moonlighting thing. Mm-hmm. Like right, 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 right. TV example of that mm-hmm. too. You know, mm-hmm. so. Yeah, yeah. Shouldn't she have gone for the Wolf Boy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm a straight, I'm a straight guy, but I, he's gay. Wolf Boy. <laughs> again, I don't know why we have to pick. Like we're again, we're really ignoring the idea. Three people being in a happy relationship together. I'm just saying. I'm in one this weekend. It's amazing. <laughs> Third person with my husband and I everywhere. It's, I can sit out. They can go do things. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. There they are. <laughs> um, yes. Um, what happens as writers when you notice you're you're about to tell a story that you're dead set on? but then you notice a chemistry elsewhere. Oh. And how does that change your storytelling when like, maybe the fans kind of want something oh, else to I, I, I have a, I, I think I can talk straight out about this experience that we had on Bones. Our um, intention was to have um, um, Angela, played by Michaela Conlon, be a free spirit bisexual. We gave her a, uh, a female partner and they didn't have any chemistry. Um, uh, no, but no one's a bad actor. They just didn't have, like, the, the chemistry. And, uh, and then, god damn it, on screen, Hodgins in Angela, if you know the show, T.J. Thine and Michaela, all of a sudden in editing, you're going, motherfucker. <laughs> They've got a thing, and we we didn't we weren't going for that. We were not going for that, but they they did it, um, uh, and they had this great chemistry. So we steered into that chemistry. Now the uh, completely legitimate complaint fans had was, oh, you ditched the bisexual um, uh, storyline in favor of the heterosexual storyline. and yes, we did. Uh, but it, we were going with a, f- uh, we were going with a. Force. The one that you would believe, though. The one you would believe, <laughs> and the one that has given us many, many episodes. Mm-hmm. And if it had gone the other way, we would have gone the other way. But still, people are angry at you, and they're not wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, I, that's like an example of something you can talk about. It doesn't. It's not mean to anyone mm-hmm. to say. But that those issues come up between actors and who has what going on so many levels that it does steer the boat. And I I would say like chemistry is gold. Like when you discover it from wherever it is, it's like, because because if you're feeling it, you know, your fans are going to feel it. And and so everybody's just like, row over there, row the boat over there. (laughs) Quite with that gesture. (laughs) (laughs) 
Guys, we're just going to get I'd together like... every week and have a panel. I just feel like we'll just be sitting there. We'll just do it every week. <laughs> do we have another question? Uh, yeah, right there. Um, going off of the, the chemistry example where you thought you were going to go in one direction, or but you, the chemistry is that, you know, what happens when, can you think of, like, examples where you wanted to go in that direction or it looked like the characters could have gone in that direction, but the story prohibited it, like, those two characters would never have gotten together in 1966 or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yes, but I, I would do a thing where you, now you have the as a writer. I think he's totally right. You do not miss, you do not let chemistry go by. You don't mm -hmm. let it, uh, oh well, that's too bad. Yeah. But then you, you could put people in scenes together and it doesn't always have to be romantic. Yeah. You know, you just find, you find the way to put them together so that you feel that energy and that, uh, the back and forth. And, but it doesn't necessarily have to bloom into love. You just want actors together who, yeah. like, you want to watch and you know there's things happening between there's them. There's more than one. Also, it doesn't have to be sexual. Yeah. Actors have chemistry. David Boreanaz and John Francis Daly mm -hmm. had fantastic chemistry, so it was fun to put them mm -hmm. together. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And you guys don't have to make it sexual because the fans will, even if you don't. <laughs> so you're covered. Totally. Like, I mean, the Michael Rogelio fanfic alone, Jenny, I'm just saying. <laughs> We'll take care of it. Don't you fret. <laughs> uh, it's true. It's true that I was going to say that you do have to, you, you have to do so little to get people invested. I mean, literally, it sometimes comes down to like a double cut of people looking at each other with a song, and people are like, "They're soulmates." <laughs> and you're like, "No, they're not." <laughs> but you know. I mean, yeah, it's just, yeah. it takes so little because I feel like people are watching and like longing for that thing. So it's like you really don't have to do a lot yeah. um, at all. Absolutely. Uh, yes, right there. Uh, romance is like so often seen as like girly or frivolous. And James Gordon especially has really, especially at the end of the season, pushed back on that with the introduction of Professor Donaldson and um, the whole Fractal Pass storyline. Did you feel like you had to speak out to it? Directly or yeah, it's a, it's uh, you know it. Well, I mean, it, it's a such a big conversation, but because uh, romance is something that's appreciated most mostly by women, or seems to be, um, you know, it gets put into this thing called guilty pleasure, um, which is uh, problematic, right? I hate um, the guilty pleasure. And then and then so you're already judging. Why do you have to it. feel guilty about it? Why do you have to? There's no. It's just pleasure. So why? Um, and so it already it's already sort of seen as less than something that has all these signifiers of importance and meaning and dark and it's brooding. Um, and I. I don't believe that. Um, and so we wanted to put that conversation into the show. And how could we put it into the show but having somebody voice it and, and talk about it and um, argue against it? And then hopefully that the show, you know, it's our show does exist on this meta level. It's hopefully the show itself is, is, you know, arguing against that. But I think whenever you're, you're arguing against something, you want to show uh, what you are arguing against. So we wanted to articulate that. Thank you. Yes, in the back. Um, my question is for Hart specifically, because I did want to talk about Hodges uh, and Angela. Mm -hmm. How does the show decide to distinguish their relationship in a way that isn't rehashing of, you know, Booth and Brennan? Um, that's a sophisticated question, I think, I hope. <laughs> um, we, what we decided to do was make uh, Angela and Hodgins um, a mighty relationship. Uh, because we were going to do, uh, we kind of touched on this earlier, um, uh, Booth and Brennan, not going to break up. 
not going to happen. Love, love story of the century. So there's a surrogate couple that we that goes through more peaks and valleys. Um, uh, you know, um, uh, there's several examples of what they go through. They, if if someone's going to break up, maybe Hodgins and Angela. We think they'd get back together again. Then, but uh, it's a parallel track that is more fraught than our the romance in our main track. We can only do that because we're a, a procedural. Um, you, I don't think you could have the peaks and valleys right. be your main. Um, uh, uh, relationship uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a romantic comedy or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yes, Can you explain who actually decides what the track of the story is going to be between you know the writers and the showrunner and the network and the you know the person that originated the story? Like, who decides what really is going to happen in a story? Well, I mean, I think. You know, either it's the creator of the show or some creators of the show have showrunners kind of put on with them, so they're collaborating. But I think that, um, I mean, look, there are two answers. If, if, if it's your show or you're the person supervising someone, you decide. Um, but then, after you decide, a lot of other people decide with you. Um, and a lot of people... Question val- your decision. Either validate your decision or question your decision or, or poke and prod your decision to make sure that's really your decision. Um, and then you sit alone and think, is that really my decision? And then you convince yourself that it is your decision. Um, but I think it's, bo- it's both in some ways. I mean, you're the person who is, who is the driving force, but... I guess to be the driving force, you're going to have to drive through a lot of things to get to the other side, and all those things are most likely going to make, are going to only strengthen what you want to do. Um, you know, it can be a good stopgap too. I mean, I've I've had some really bad ideas, but thank God there have been some people being like, you need to slow your roll there. Um, so you know, you have, to have a team that help you let you have bad ideas, so that you can yes. Uh, one hundred percent. You're not the always the person uh, pulling back on yourself. Yes, totally. And oftentimes, you know, when you're on staff in a room, um, you might be having the bad idea that you get to pitch to the person who created the show or the showrunner. I mean, I remember on What About Brian, you know, Josh Reams came in, left us alone in the room. He was running the show for like um, a couple hours and we came back and we were like, we have a great story. We're like, there's a cow on the lawn on June street in LA. And there's just like this. And and then we were like, and then there's an airstream and he's like, I don't know what you guys have been doing, but there's no cow. And we were like, yeah, someone's going to go like a cow on the lawn on June street. That's not possible. And he's like, you're high. No one's doing that. You need to all go home. And we were like, I still am like, I think that cow story was... Anyway, we did have cows on casual. I'm like, that cow will come back someday. I'm like, that was worth it. Um, but, you know, you, you know, when you're a writer on staff, it's, it's your job to pitch all those things. And when it's your show, it's, it's your job to hone those pitches and, and, and decide what gets through. And, and the great thing about television, even if it's one person who gets that stamp of it's, it's their show... It becomes all of our shows. It becomes their show, the staff's show, the crew's show, the studio show, the network show, and eventually it becomes your show. Um, and that's, yeah, and, and I would say being a... Thanks, you guys. <laughs> I would say being a showrunner is uh, this delicate dance of managing a group of artists and letting them do their art within the framework of your show while still having a vision for your show and, and charting it. And it's really hard at times because... You can't make all the decisions. As a showrunner, we can't. But 
but we are the genesis of the idea and we're the, the vision of it. So it is this push and pull and there are a lot of voices in the room, but it really is, you know, the showrunner whose job it is to to set the path. So, you know, the buck kind of stops yeah. with the showrunner. If you want to know who to blame, it's the showrunner. Right? Yes, that is who to blame. That is who to blame. And you can find all of them on Twitter after this panel if you need to do that. Um, I think we have time for one more question before a final. Yes. So I wanted to ask Jenny, um, how did you go about challenging the idea that a, room, that a couple, when they get together, well, sorry, nervous, <laughs> Michael, yeah. um, a lot of people would see him as the safe, boring choice, but you actually made him the healthy, loving, mm-hmm. happy choice, and I wanted to know how you went about that, because it resulted, I think, in something great. Oh, thank you. Well, it, you know, it was a conscious choice, and I felt like we set that uh, up in the beginning. We had a, we put a lot of the weight on, on Raphael, and then, it, you know, I came into the writer's room the second year, and I, this is the year of Michael, um, and, uh, you know... I wanted her to make a choice because I didn't want to, again, reflecting back on her, I didn't want her to be somebody who could not make up her mind because you can only go so far down that road before you're like, geez, come on. So um, so we wanted her to choose about halfway through Michael, and I, I think there's something very romantic about someone who knows you so well and who uh, safety gets a bad rap, but there's something really nice about that and being known and knowing somebody. I mean, that is essentially a different kind of romance. It's just not the romance that is on the cover of a romance novel, you know, which is... So uh, we wanted to look at what uh, she saw in Raphael and then really sort of honor what she and Michael had and what their relationship could be and how fulfilling that could be. Um, And I think a lot of it, you know, technically came down to... um, him not being jealous anymore, uh, him loving Mateo and her son as much as he did him embracing um, how much her family loved him. I mean, she's so close with her family, and they all love him. You're like, gosh, there's like, you know, and and something, there's something really magical in there. So we were trying to find the magic um, of of what was seen as a safe choice. And then you shot him. We did. <laughs> what is the ma- no. Um, so, <laughs> you know I'm happy now. You know how I feel, Jenny. We've talked about this. Um, I want to uh, close this out by asking each of you this question. Obviously, there's so much to be proud of in all of the shows you guys have created when it comes. Bigger Than Love, Small Than Love, everything in there. But if we're thinking specifically of romance on your shows... What are you each most, what story are you most proud of? What, except, what do you feel like you've told that you're the most happy about? I mean, which love beat sort of resonates with you the most that you've put on screen? Carter, can I start with you? Oh, I, uh, you know, faking it was all around a, a best friendship where one person falls in love with her best friend. And so I'm just so proud that we got to tell that story and to, uh, that, those, that their friendship survived that journey um and and hearing from fans who connected with that has it it will forever warm my heart i have so many years to choose from um (laughs) that i know i'm gonna forget something but i was um i was really pleased i I wrote their vows uh when they got married um um, karina rosenthal wrote a ton of the uh wedding episode but i I wrote their vows because i'd been there from the beginning and 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 
I was really pleased with how those came off. And then there we, we did a test run. Uh, we did an alternate re reality show, Booth. It, it, it sounds like it should be a telenovela when I say it. Booth got shot and, and he was in a coma. Um, and he lived in an alternate reality where the, the, the lab was a nightclub and they were a married couple. Um, and everybody else played, everybody else played radically different characters than they are in real life. But Booth and Brennan, the only difference was that they owned a nightclub together. And it was really fun to watch what they looked like as a couple that had been together for years, years before we put them together as a couple, to see if we could see what would happen if we eventually went there. And uh, that was just, I, I don't know if the audience would ever love it as much as we did, but we were all so pleased with them and us. And, and <laughs> plus Motley Crue played. <laughs> um, the, the moment uh, in Jane and Michael's wedding when, when he looks at, at uh, Abuela and, and she nods and you know he's been practicing his vows in Spanish and says them to Jane. <laughs> Yeah, so that, and uh, we, we had, um, uh, I think I was halfway through writing the finale, and, um, and uh, we were reading episode 21, so the one before, and uh, Carolina Rivera, who's one of our writers, came up to me, and she was, like, so excited she was going to burst, and she said, Michael has to say his vows to her in Spanish. Um, and it was just one, the minute she said it, I mean, I can only take credit for knowing it was a good idea. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, I liked how it came out. Again, and then you shot him. I know. I know I'm just like, <laughs> just saying. <laughs> um, it's very hard to choose. I mean, my inclination is to pick something from Life Unexpected because that show is so, um, like, with me and my heart in so many ways, and there are so many little love moments. But what came, the first thing that came to mind actually is a scene from Casual. It's a storyline that we did in Casual in season one, and, um, an episode that was very much uh, ripped from the headlines of my real life, which was that when I was engaged to my wife, I one day we got in a fight, and she went to take the trash out, and I don't know why I did this, but I just locked the door the minute she walked out of the house. I just locked her out of the house, and then she heard the click and said, do you just fucking lock me out of the house? And then I was like, oh my God, the only thing worse than locking someone out of the house is now having to unlock the door to let them back in. And so when we were, when we were working on a casual episode, I said, what if Valerie just like locks Drew in a garage? And, um, and she did. I'd and lock, I'd lock Jamie in a garage. And <laughs> it happens. But it was, anyway, we talked about how long to leave him in there, and then once you've locked somebody in, when to let them out, and when you might need to feed them, and how long they'll be okay. Do you pretend it was an accident, and, and they, you walked away? And, and she, they'd had an argument about lemons, because they were selling their house and wanted to stage it, and so he, the guy, Drew, who's locked in the garage, is now just hurling lemons at the door, you know, and, and then they end up having this, like, sweet moment where they're both on either side of the door, and she's gotten him sugar fish, and she's, like, passing soy sauce under the door for him, and they're kind of dissecting how their marriage kind of went so wrong and, and how it's over. And, and at the end of it, you know, you know, she unlocks the door and he realizes it and she's gone. And I just, for me, it was like, again, it was, it was just, I think because it was a personal story and I had just done it not that long ago and felt really bad about it and had brought it up in the room. Um, I think whenever you can kind of incorporate those real life things into like real emotion on the show and then getting to see it feels so, um, 
satisfying and truthful and obviously horribly specific. Um, but I don't know. That's just what came to mind just now. I love it. Guys, this has been so much fun. I really appreciated all of your amazing questions. You guys have been incredible. Give it up for this panel, everybody. Thank you all. Jarrett Weisselman and Karina McKenzie. Excellent. Thank you so much for coming out. Uh, so just a little reason why I think there are two of us up here. YA television is pretty much one of the biggest industries in television right now. I mean, you have the book side, you have the television side, and I pretty much watch all of the television shows. If there's like a couple to ship, I am front and center watching them. <laughs> but I sort of have this real... I don't own a TV. <laughs> She's also a... Kidding. Habitual liar. Uh, but, you know, Karina not only has written an amazing YA book, but also consumes all of them. I mean, is there any YA book you have not read? No, I read them and I eat them. <laughs> I mean, as one does. Uh, so that is why I feel like her and I sort of make sense to be co-moderating this panel, because I bring a TV perspective, she has a book perspective. And with that said, let's get our panelists out here. First, we have Liz Tegeler. And Carter Covington. Rebecca Searle. And Anna Fricky. Hi. So everybody on this panel has a sort of a, a different level of experience and a different in TV in general and also in YA. We have some novelists up here. We have some TV creators. Um, but before we get into everything that you guys have produced, we'd love to talk a little bit about the TV that inspired you when you guys were teenagers or young adults. I mean, we're all young adults still. All millennials. All young still. people. <laughs> um, what did you guys watch? What, what got you excited about the genre and made you sort of want to go into that later on? Dawson's Creek, and I know there are some people who worked on there, so I'm just going to really try to keep my cool a little bit. <laughs> um, it's probably not going to turn out too well. <laughs> but no, I mean, I think, like, the love story between Pacey and Joey on Dawson's Creek really ignited my love of the genre. And it has inspired my book and show, Famous in Love. It's inspired, like, just basically everything that I feel like I've worked on. And the Vampire Diaries, but I wasn't, I wasn't a kid when that happened. Rebecca still talks about Pacey and Joey like it's still happening right now. Yeah, I, I, like, I, I, I'll I, randomly get a text message about like something that happened literally 14 years ago. <laughs> it's new it's to her when she rewatches it. Yeah, it's like the waves wash over her continually to this You know day. what I just thought about? Remember that one time? I'm like, yeah, I remember it vaguely. <laughs> <laughs> the past is now, guys. Uh, Anna, what about you? Um, I think that for me, it was Party of Five. That was, um, 
I, and that was appointment television in college. It was before like TiVo, if anyone remembers TiVo or DVRs <laughs> or anything. And I just remember making a point of sitting down and watching Party of Five every week and having that feeling that the highs in your life were never as high and the lows were never as low. And it just made me sort of obsessed with that sort of super emotional but really grounded storytelling. And then I had the chance to work with Scott Wolf years later on Everwood. And the second he was cast, I was like, <laughs> just keep cool, keep cool. And then at the holiday party one year, I like had like three martinis or something. I was like, I just you know, you heard the reason I got into television. <laughs> <laughs> so much I love party of five. Probably that one. <laughs> We've all been there. I, yeah. I had that. I had that experience with uh, James Eckhouse, the dad from Nine Hundred Two and Zero. When I was an assistant on American Dreams, I I loved Party of Five too, and I loved Nine Hundred Two and Zero before it got crazy. Like the we watched the at, finale together at your oh, house. Oh yes, yeah. totally. Oh well, my we god! And my and my college friends dressed up for Kelly and Brandon's wedding in like full wedding wear, um, and I was like, I was an assistant. I was sharing an office with the writer Mike Foley. And all of a sudden, James Eckhouse walks in because he's like shadowing Dave Semmel or something, who had also been on whatever. And he comes in, and I'm like, <gasps> I'm like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. And then it turned out a 90210 like reunion was happening someplace like deep in the valley. And basically, James Eckhouse, I, I tried all week to be like, don't say I love him, don't say I love him, don't say I love him. And then finally, on Friday, I was like, oh my God, or Thursday, I'm like, I love you so much, I couldn't help it, I've been trying to keep it in all week. And he's like, well, we're having a reunion actually um, tomorrow. If you want to come, I could just have you like pose as my assistant and get in. And I was like, ooh. So I'm like, I'm there. So I follow the directions to like some dumpster in Van Nuys. And I'm like, I think this is it. And I'm sitting out of the dumpster and I'm like, I don't know if I'm in the right place. And I've like lied about coming into work late. And I feel like everyone's going to be mad at me. And all of a sudden Luke Perry walked out and he's like, hey. And I'm like, hey. And I was wearing a shirt that I always wore that had a pig that said, please don't eat me. I love you. <laughs> Holding a bouquet of flowers because obviously that's what I would wear. And um, he was like nice pig shirt <laughs> and I was like God <laughs> it was amazing that print like that's it um, I, I it's, these are tough acts to follow um, who did I, you stalk in the valley <laughs> who the wouldn't deep, I stalk deep valley. in the valley um, I, I kind of I didn't really fall into fandom-ish until Buffy the Vampire Slayer that was the show that like Blew my mind. Um, I kind of wish Twitter had been around so I could have like really committed to the fandom. Um, and I was working on Greek, and uh, I'd written a, an episode for Charisma Carpenter to guest star, and I was like, I can't, I can't believe Cordelia's going to say my words. She's going to say my words. Like, my words. And I was so excited, and I go to set the first day, and I'm like, yes, this is happening. And they do the rehearsal, and you know, everybody's kind of looking at their sides, and, and, and then we start to shoot, and she does not remember any of the words. And she's just saying her own words, and I'm like, what's happening? What's happening? We, we eventually got her there, but it was, it was one of those moments where you're like, and, and she is a delightful person, but uh, you're like, this didn't match what I thought it was going to be in my head. But that's such a Cordelia thing to do. <laughs> And she would say things like, I, I don't know, what are the words? What, what are the words? <laughs> That's very cordial. Yeah. That's true. So we're going to 
talk a little bit about sort of the differences, you know, in books versus television. So I want to start by asking you this, Carter. I mean, when we say YA television, what do you mean? take that to mean? I'm not really sure. You know, it's funny. When, they, when I was asked to be on this, I, I, never, I don't really think of myself as a YA writer or that I work in a YA space. So I was thinking about it, and I, I, but I feel sometimes the, that I'm painted with that brush, like, oh, he's, he's had two teen shows. He's a teen writer. Um, I think that what happens to us uh, in that specific time period is, is so universal that everybody can relate to it. I think it's the same issues that are brought up in adult work, but I think if they're framed the same way, you know, Meredith Grey worries about her boyfriend just like, you know, a 16-year-old girl. They're the same issues, um, but but because it's presented by actors who are young and in a, in a wide space, it's discounted a little bit, and I think that's a shame. Yeah, absolutely. You guys have all worked on shows that I guess I would classify as YA and shows that are for... I guess targeted at a more adult audience. Is there anything that you've ever felt like you can't tackle when you when you are speaking from sort of the perspective of a teenager or two teenagers? Is there anything that you feel like you know worlds that feel like you're going too far? Well, I think I don't know. I mean, the biggest thing I think of with that question is just consequences. And I think I think when you're dealing with teenagers and teen characters, there's a you know pressure, you could call it, or responsibility, you could also call it, to show kind of consequences of actions. So if it involves sex, drinking, you know, drugs, things like that, um, I think you're going to kind of be probably more pressured to show kind of the, you might get to see the upside, but you also see the downside. I mean, you know, I work on casual now, and we have a teenage character who's, you know, she comprises one third of the show, and I never think of her stories as teen stories, and when I compare and when I compare it, um, not so much to other teen things I've written, but to other teen things I see, there's something about her that feels so much more real to me. And we are kind of given the freedom—not that we're irresponsible, because um, she is a responsible kid. I mean, she drinks, she smokes pot, she has sex, um, like many teenagers do, and something dire doesn't happen because of it. But. Um, it's kind of nice to have that freedom without having to kind of shoehorn in the valuable lesson of the story. But to also, that to that yeah. end, do you get like different notes as far as the teenage characters on a show like that versus no on like Life Unexpected? We never get that note. I mean, it might be a product of Hulu, Lionsgate, but we never ever get that note. We more often get a note that's protecting Michaela Watkins' character Valerie to make sure she doesn't seem like a bad mom. But we never get a note about what Laura's doing or her her actions. So interesting yeah Rebecca you recently adapted the book that you wrote famous in love for ABC family it's going to be a series coming later this year ish 27th yeah um what was it like for you in adapting your own work for a different medium because I know you aged up the characters and I was wondering if you could talk about sort of the process that went into some of those decisions and that experience for you yeah well I think like I think what really matters in adaptation are two things, the characters and the relationships between the characters. And I think the rest of it you kind of put over to the side. Um, so, and that's, and that's where I really feel like the spirit of the show lives is in the characters, like the spirit of the work lives is in the characters. So the characters, the relationship between them. And then um, 
for Famous in Love, it's it's uh, it's about a girl who gets plucked from obscurity to star in a major feature film franchise. And in the book, she's in high school. In the show, um, she's in college. And I think we felt like we'd have a better opportunity to kind of blow it open and explore um, some some of the more dark elements that we wanted to if we put them in their twenties a little bit. I think also this is I mean this is my first adaptation. It's my first television show. I'm primarily a novelist. I've written four books. And in YA, we kind of classify YA, to me, in, in two categories. Number one, that the, that the protagonist is a teen. But the second one, it's, it's kind of a little bit what you were saying, Liz, is that the story arcs towards redemption, that there's a redemptive element at the end, that there's light at the end of the tunnel. And um, I think like that, that, to me, is kind of what care, categorizes the genre. And... Um, yeah, we're just mixing it up, making it a little bit darker in television. <laughs> um, Anna, you worked, you did a lot of work on Everwood, which I think was a show that I would classify as YA, but it really was sort of a 50-50 balance between the adults and the teenagers. Is there a difference in the way that you write like parents on a TV show that is for and about teens? Do you Do you feel like, I mean... I know that when I was a teenager, it would be like, time for the parent storyline. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> but, I mean, do you, do you, is there a different, is there, like, any pressure to make the parents cool? Yeah, I cool? mean, it's, it's basically exactly what you just said. Like, how do we break this story so that it's not like, oh, time for the parents, which I always felt like Seventh Heaven was like, time for the parents storyline. Um, yeah. No offense to Seventh Heaven. Uh, we tried, or I mean, Dawson. we basically, or Dawson's. Oh, yeah, I mean, Dawson's... Whatever. I, I was super into Mitch and Gail. Every, Me too. Everybody I was. was Grams. I mean, Grams is. Oh well, Grams. Yeah. I mean, Grams was in a category. All you were yeah. never like. You were Grams like, was not, not a parent. Yeah. Story. Yeah. She's yeah. not a parent. But definitely, like, we wanted to avoid that. Like, we were. I. We feel like Dawson's was pretty bad with the like. Here's the parent storyline, but. I mean, everyone, we really tried to, we were trying to make it, like, you know, Dr. Brown's story was just as, in, as interesting, and but that also it was telling the family's story of, you know, Dr. Abbott has an issue with his daughter, and that's crossing over into her relationship with Ephraim, and really trying to make them all relate, because you are connected to your parents at that time, even if you don't want to admit it, and you don't want to think about it, you are under the same household. So, but it's definitely... A conflict, and really, I think what we tried to do a lot was sex the grown-ups up, <laughs> which always ends up being awkward. Tom Amanda, <laughs> everybody. <laughs> but, I, but it's and Anne Hayes and her husband, who was like trapped in his own mind and like couldn't speak or move, and she and Dr. Brown were like having sex in front of him. <laughs> Perfect. I remember that. There was like a fireplace. Like that, yeah. <laughs> It didn't work. That it well. is weird how you classify it, though, because like if someone asked me, I would think of Everwood as more of a family drama, and if I, and I would think of my so-called life as a teen, an amazing, like best done teen show. Yeah. You know, like you do kind of make a distinction. Yeah. I mean, that might just be me. But Some of it is like how much do you see the high school hallway? You know what I mean? Yeah. Literally, like if you if you're in the high school world and you're dealing with high school issues. Versus whatever's happening outside of that. Well, and that's the most common. I feel like that's one of the most common notes you get now is like if you're pitching something teen, it's like, but we're not going to be like in a high school like seeing lockers, are we? Like nobody oh, wants to see that all the right? time. Yeah, no lockers ever. No lockers. But it won't actually be in high school, right? <laughs> I think that's part of the reason, honestly, that we put them in their twenties is just to avoid that. Like to yeah. yeah. 
Do you have, um, are parents like big characters on Famous in Love or do you get to sort of like push the parents aside and the adults aside because they're a little bit older? Yeah, they are. They are actually for us. We're trying, we've just been in our room for two weeks and we're trying to, to like not silo them as like, you know, like you were saying, to integrate them into storylines. Um, but I think, and from what I've heard from other creators, that as the show develops, this, the, the, and you guys can speak to this, that the parents kind of begin to fall off more as your, your young people rise and take over. I, I think it's also, you know, who, who do they want to watch the show? Yeah. And, you know, I feel like Everwood was very much a show that they wanted families to watch together. And it kind of pushed boundaries and was groundbreaking, but it was wary of pushing them so far that families couldn't watch it together and that would yeah. make them uncomfortable. And I think, like, for faking it, they didn't want the parents to watch, you know? The, MTV was like, sex it up, please! Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it was more us in the writer's room who said, well, this has to have a moral... This has to be an optimistic story. The characters have to have live in a moral universe where we're not scared every week that they're going to be you know, living horrible lives the rest of their lives, you know. Um, so I think it's it's kind of who is the audience and then you craft the show to hit that. And I think often networks, that's where it gets confusing because they'll say, well, we want this audience. Oh, what, now we want this audience. And you're like, uh, but it's but, what, not how we built the show. But you did an amazing job on faking it and integrating the parents and making them really interesting characters in their own right. I mean, if you're talking about MTV saying, like, we don't care about, you know, 50-year-olds watching this television show... Did it free you up to make those parents so in, like interesting and engaging in their own storylines? Yeah, I, I think really what it was for me is I am a parent, and so it has changed the way I want to tell parent stories, you know? Um, and I want my friends and my, co- and my people that in my generation to be able to watch Faking It and connect with uh, the material just like an 18-year-old. So um, it was more from from me not wanting to create just car- kind of cartoon cutout. Yeah, I mean, speaking to that, you know, with all of your Greek ten things faking it, you've done an amazing job at sort of expanding the scope of representation well, on television. You, I do. I mean, it's <laughs> it's true. I mean, you you taught you wrote intersex stories, you wrote gay stories, you wrote, I mean, you wrote. Really incredible stories that were not being told, especially on the networks that you told them on. You know, on ABC Family, to have a show like Greek and to have a character like Calvin, I think, was so fantastic for the people who were watching it. And I'm curious, you know, when you know you're writing to a younger audience, do you feel an onus of, I want to make sure that we are telling stories that will mean something to these people because this is such a formative time in their lives? Yes, very much so. And I think that... um, with regards to gay characters, I feel like it has evolved. There are enough gay characters and lesbians, you know, in on television that I don't think there's the pressure of this character represents something so much bigger. But when we told the intersex storyline, I knew this that was going to be the only intersex character on TV and that every move she made would be scrutinized more than any other character on the show. So you definitely feel that pressure, but also that's, to me, what's exciting about it. I remember when Dawson's Creek had their the sort of the first gay kiss and the first gay storyline. Um, I, I still tell this story all the time because it. I was thirteen, maybe, and it was my literal first exposure to a gay person that I knew of at thirteen years old. Was Jack on Dawson's Creek, and I remember it like turned me into this like little thirteen-year-old gay rights activist. <laughs> and, 
I tell yeah. Greg Merlanti that's... Doing it for Jack, guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, when people talk about representation and those young audiences, I'm like, it really, it's a real thing. It makes a huge difference in somebody's life to see, like, somebody cool like Pacey standing up for the gay kid. Because in my high school, nobody was standing up for the gay kid, you know? And it was, like, when you sort of tackle issues like that and it's, you're the first one to do the thing, I mean, is there a lot of pressure? Is it, is it, I mean, you guys can probably speak to it too because you were around Dawson's Creek and around Kevin and Greg in those days. I mean, is it terrifying? <laughs> I, I, I will say for me, I, I don't think that um, it didn't feel so risky to me. I, we were hearing, uh, you know, we consulted, I did my homework and I think that's important. We, we you know, had many young intersex people come and speak and share their stories and I knew that their stories I, I connected to them because they're all what we all go through. You know, if people knew about the, the true me, would they still love me and accept me? Like, I, I know what that feels like. I think everybody knows what that feels like. So we felt really good about the emotional core, and we just, you know, once you know the story you want to tell, it's not that scary. Um, and I just, yeah. It, it, it was more, I think this, the, I, what I was more scared about was um, would it, would it, be it's uh will the audience accept it will they engage with it the way we want them to that's the scary part because you know you don't want it to come across as an after school special or people to be like oh this is turning me off you know really to me um increasing visibility is about getting people to empathize with someone that has a totally different experience and and that's how we build bridges through television so it's like that that is this is this going to hit that goal? That's that's when it airs. That's the scary part. But shooting it and developing it's not it's not that scary. Do you guys find? I mean, across the board, that when you're writing uh, something that we would classify as YA versus something that we would classify as a more adult drama, what's the difference in the feedback that you get from the audience? I mean, I would imagine that there's a, a sort of social media slant, but you know, do you find that? you're getting responses from teenagers that are very different from the kind of responses that you get from adults? I think, I think probably yes. I mean, I think that the intensity of the experience as a teen and as a young person is more so maybe than somebody watching their experience being reflected as a 35-year-old or a 40-year-old. And I think it, it, that, that intensity elicits passion it elicits engagement um so i think so yeah but that i mean that's so amazing that's such a wonderful part of it to to be able to connect and be able to talk to people who are so excited and passionate about something that you're helping to make there probably is a crazy flip side too i mean yeah I, you know i haven't, sure. <laughs> I haven't worked on uh, I, I haven't worked on a ya or whatever how you whatever ya show um since the kind of rise of social media. And I, I can't imagine, I mean, I look at something like The Vampire Diaries is a good example. I mean, you know, Julie's a friend. I follow her on Twitter. I don't know what I see sometimes, but like I know when so it's like after the show is aired, there is like a frenzy of opinions and of retweeting and of a lot of, you know, I'm not sure what's happened, but I know I'm, I'm worried about Delena or I'm worried about um, Daryline or, or Stephaline or I don't know, but there's like a lot happening and people are very upset about it. And I just... 
I feel like there's something about the feedback that would be so wonderful. I feel like when Life Unexpected ended, it was just when people were like, hey, we could like live tweet the episode. Or like, it was just kind of starting out. And I remember feeling like, oh, like this is so nice. Like People, I don't know, they didn't necessarily have the same... Um, like there wasn't a lot of vitriol that that came, maybe because it just wasn't as many people watching. Um, but I would imagine that that could be a little intimidating too. And what's also tricky about social media is, I feel like you could be really overwhelmed, either in a positive or negative way, by like three people. But you don't yeah. know that it's three people. Yeah. It feels like a lot of things coming yeah. at you. So it's also just a different. Probably when you're older. I mean, I don't feel like anyone is going to tweet at us about casual like. How could, how could Valerie have hooked up with Emmy? How could she have done that? Just wait. You know, but, but, but when it's, when it's a show with a younger audience, maybe there's, maybe it's a little bit harder to separate. I mean, you're really living this experience for the first time. So. Yeah. And I, I, I have, I have so many mixed feelings about social media because I think it is, um, it's so wonderful to get that feedback from fans, um, which is who we're trying to talk to and please and that's and it's a conversation that's really great and and when fans would complain about something I'm faking it I would answer it in the show which I felt like was a great way to have the conversation I would never engage on Twitter because yeah. that's just a no that doesn't go good no. um, teach me how <laughs> no seriously no. please do because I can't deal with it anymore yeah. either. just but, delete the app you know you know, we had uh, a lot of people who were upset that Amy, uh, the lead of our show, had not labeled herself, like had not said, I'm bisexual or I'm gay. And this season we did an episode where she took a stand and said, you know, we have to make space for people who don't want to label themselves. And, and the most important label to me that she made was not straight. And I felt like she was on a journey, a 16-year-old girl's journey of discovery, and she deserved the time to take that. And... That was my response to fans who were really upset that, you know, so it is this wonderful place where you can go, okay, how how do I want to evolve the show so that I can show fans that I'm hearing what they're saying and this is my take on it because it is my show and this is what I want to say. And uh, But it's dangerous because I think you can get to the point where you're like, you're seeking that validation from fans and that's when you lose who you are as a creator. Yeah, it's nice to, I mean, when we did Life Unexpected, and certainly with Casual, it's the same thing, although that's not, you know, necessarily geared towards teenagers. Um, we did them far enough in advance that we were able to get feedback, but it wasn't at a point where we could really be changing things or respond to it. And feedback's nice, but it's also nice not to be in a scramble of constantly, when you've created something or you're working on a show, like, you you have to commit to your vision. Like, if you're constantly just trying to navigate and, like, please people, I don't know, it's like you have to have something you want to say and you have to know a story that you're committed to and you have to kind of find the freedom to do it and it's not really about the response, you know? The response can be something extra and it can be a bonus and certainly if it's positive, it feels amazing. But um, I don't know, it, it could be very distracting if it's like... It's like having a backseat driver. You know? yeah. <laughs> and it's addictive. You yeah. know, I, I, you, especially when you're launching a show and you're so excited, you want to hear how people are doing. I mean, you can lose like two hours to surfing <laughs> tweets two? and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've lost six years. <laughs> it, it strikes me that in this conversation about social media, you know, we're talking about how engaging with fandom has changed over the years, but the other thing that has changed is how teenagers live their lives. And although none of us have aged in that time, which is so impressive, um, what it is to be a teenager today 
is so different than what it was to be a teenager in Dawson's years or in Everwood years or even in Greek years. You know, in I mean, our it, years. Yeah. I mean, it's changed so much. So I'm curious, how do you guys continue... How, what have you found is important in continuing to write a teenage voice and updating it and staying current so it doesn't feel like, oh, this is an adult writing a teen? I mean, for me, I, I think that the most... The biggest through line for writing teens is that I think they're just a lot more honest, you know, and I think that if we old people, I'll speak for myself, uh, try too hard to make them cool or sound current or present day, then then it starts to feel really fake and like that's a 40 year old trying to write a teenager. But I think if it's just if you're tapping into what was it that I was attached to when I was a teen, and that's why I think you guys do great on casual, it's like it's just so raw, it's just so real. And I think if you lead with that, that's the most helpful thing I found. Yeah, I mean, it's been interesting on Casual because one of our priorities this season was, you know, for anyone who's seen the show last season, that that Laura's storyline was very much about um, kind of having this thing for her teacher. And, I mean, I, you know, when I first heard it, when Xander, who created the show, who's wonderful, had pitched it, I loved his take on it. I also felt like, you know, I've written that storyline before. I've seen that storyline before. It's not the most original storyline, but I thought our take on it felt original. But coming into second season, it was like, okay, let's do something that we haven't seen on any show. Let's do a completely different story, and let's really prioritize Laura as not just kind of the lesser because she's the teen and, and you know, Michaela and Tommy get these bigger stories, but let's really, like, lift Tara up and see kind of um, what we can really give to her that feels different. And I feel like this season, I mean, where it goes is... I think very original and it's definitely a girl who's like exploring her sexuality and exploring why she lacks intimacy and why she feels the way she does about sex. Um, and it was interesting. And this is like a little thing, but we had, I forget the organization. I'm mad at myself because I should be plugging it, but it's just like a coalition to like prevent teen. Council for the prevention of teen pregnancy. That's it. And, um, and they came and spoke to us, and they're wonderful, and, you know, it's nonpartisan. And, um, and, um, and we were talking about how to incorporate it into the show. And we were saying with Laura, and this is to answer your question of how some things evolved, we were like, Laura would know how to, like, Laura doesn't need anyone telling her how to prevent teen pregnancy. Like, Laura's a teenager who has sex all the time. She knows how to not get pregnant, you know? And it's, so it's more like she doesn't have to worry about it because she knows. Right. Um, it's not that there has to be a very special episode where her mom talks to her about it. It would be more likely that she would be talking to her mom, who's back in the dating world, being like, are you an idiot? Like, yeah. here's what you have to do. So um, I feel like that's a way. It's like teenagers are smarter. Mm-hmm. They're, um, there is responsibility. When she goes out, she's like, I know, only two drinks, Uber at home, be home by one. You know, it's just, it's like by rote to her. So I feel like that's kind of a way that we've evolved. And with sexuality, I think, I mean... One thing that I've liked that we've kind of worked on with that show is that, um, you know, people have experiences and it doesn't lead to freaking out about the experiences. You know, Valerie, for those of you who've seen it, basically has sex with Alex's girlfriend, Emmy, um, in season one. She doesn't have a crisis of, oh my God, what does this mean? I, you know, had a drug fueled sex with this woman. Um, you know, she certainly not worried about having hooked up with a woman. She's more like, I did it with my brother's girlfriend. Like, that's the, that's the part that's causing her angst. So there's not a big, you know, deep dive into her sexuality. It's like, yeah, sure, I did that. So I feel like it kind of evolves that way, too. What about with technology? Rebecca, you and I kind of, we're the same age, and we sort of exited our teens just as 
Facebook was becoming cool and texting was becoming a thing. Sexting wasn't even a thing yet. Nobody was taking naked pictures, but now that's like, that's like what teenagers are dealing with. Do you feel like when you're writing your books and as far as when you're tackling the show, like you are in uncharted territory a little bit with those things that are so present in their lives but weren't necessarily for us as teenagers? Yeah, I mean, I do, like, I think it's interesting just the the unbelievable exposure that teens have, the unbelievable way that they have to expose themselves. And I, huh, what? Yeah, exactly. Literally. Yeah, exactly, literally. I mean, you look at some of these Snapchats and it's like, just, wow, um, okay, that's what's, what's going on here. Um, but I think, like, I mean, I think kind of what we're talking about, this this sort of broader issue of of the way we were as teens, what we loved in teen shows and kind of how we write now. It's like, but the I, I have to really believe that the mentality in the heart doesn't change. It's like we are still, we are, we still experience the same things. We fall in love the same way. We feel isolated, disconnected in the same way. And so, yes, we have all of this different, um, we have a lot of different modes to express it now, uh, which we didn't before. But I think like I really try to keep that in mind when I'm writing um, books or television that like the heart the nar- that that narrative heart I think is a thorough through mm-hmm. I I also think it's important to talk about that te- what teens there's so much more competition for teens attention these days and they're watching yeah. um, you know YouTube and they're connecting with people on YouTube who are being themselves and open and here I am this is and so I think that their entertainment choices and the shows they watch and the shows they commit to have to have that same accessibility and that same vulnerability and that same, you know. So I think no, if you tried to write to a teenager, it would come across really false. Mm -hmm. Right. Because I think that that young people today are much more in tune to authenticity and it's what they seek out. They want Mm -hmm. authentic emotions, authentic connections. Um, So, you know, that's that's the way to reach them. They're literally used to being entertained by people who are looking directly into yeah. the camera. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, someone just said that if you remade Breakfast Club now, it would be five teenagers looking at their phones. Right, um, right. And it's true. Yeah. I, I yeah. think there's, you know, they have... That's my literal brunches with my friends, so... Right. Yeah. So rude. <laughs> no. But, I'm, but, Carter, on that tip, I'm curious. I mean, how... What, if, what has been interesting to you about the way it has changed and how you can talk about sexuality through teenage characters as it's evolved? It's, you know, I think teens are much more savvy about sexuality. I think you see that in the declining teen pregnancy rates. Um, we did a show, uh, we did an episode where one of our characters, you know, Amy slept with, Karma, with Liam, Karma's uh, guy, and everybody hated that she did it. But the next episode, she went and got the morning after pill, and there was no... There's no like very special episode about it, and um, and I think that's that's kind of the way they want the information. They want to present it in a real way. That's a way to present this is an option to you without hitting them over the head. Um, and and I think they're very wary of being preached to and sort of uh, they're so much savvier than we were because they have access to so much more than we had access to. I mean, on the flip side of that question, what were the struggles you had when you were writing Greek, which was a show about kids in college who ostensibly, as I've heard, have a lot of sex? Yeah. You know, I mean, what was... So I've heard. So, I've heard. so I saw, actually. <laughs> but I mean, like, what, did you, were you surprised by... That sounded by, really it, weird. <laughs> <laughs> it was just in the windows. Uh, <laughs> by the way, I did not have sex in college. I will announce that here. So I didn't... I just watched a lot of people do it. <laughs> 
Anyway, yeah, it's not helping. It's not helping. <laughs> but I mean, did anything surprise you about the way you were allowed to talk about sexuality with kids in college at that time? Yeah, well, I, I should say that Greek was written by my husband, Sean Smith, who is brilliant. Um, and working on that show, um, you know, sex was... Uh, it was I think we really wanted to create a sex-positive show, and we wanted to figure out what that meant for us, how to, how to show young people enjoying sex, having sex, making the decision to have sex that wasn't uh, touched by shame. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that show did that very well. And, and so that's, I think, the difference. I think, I think we've evolved from uh, kind of that very special episode when someone has sex for the first time to this is part of the fabric of life. There's no shame in, in, in the fact that you're considering having sex. You know, there's no shame in either of the choices that you make. So I remember those old WB pro- promos that were like, tonight's the night, Joey and Pacey <laughs> on the ski trip. And we always had oh to, God, we had to pan, like pan, four to the years. Fire, pan to the fire, no matter what, because you yeah. couldn't see any movement. Oh, so you yeah. had to pan to the fire. Oh we still God. get the no thrusting note. No thrusting. <laughs> There's always a pan to a fire or an open window with curtains billowing. (laughs) But I think it is kind of actually interesting to speak to the way we used to be able to like really slow burn romance in television and how kind of, and and, and the milestones of that, right? Like the loss of, of virginity, all of those sort of things and how difficult that is to do now just because of the pace at which television needs to move or, um, we're kind of people will go watch YouTube. Yeah, yeah. And and the council to prevent teen pregnancy, they need a shorter name. It takes forever to say that. Very wordy. Uh, they are awesome people, but they they shared their research. And one of the things we thought was interesting was that there's no real like this is the moment I'm going to lose my virginity. There's many moments now. It's like, well, this is the time I'm gonna you know do the oral stuff, and this is the time I'm gonna try this for the first time. Like. Teens today have multiple firsts, and it isn't the epic moment that it was. And so, um, you know, I think part of that is a reflection of the fact that as a society, we've become less uptight around sex, I think. They told the best story when they came in. I thought this was amazing and wanted to use it this season, but we didn't. But maybe you heard this. They, they, were, they were talking to, like, a small group of women, you know, teenage girls, basically, about kind of sex and their experience and blah, blah, blah. And one girl said when she goes, she's maybe like college age. She said when she goes out for the night in college, what she does is she puts a condom in her bra so that like her sober self will protect her drunk self later. (laughs) So like when she's with somebody and she like undresses, a condom just falls out and she's like, oh yeah, put this on. (laughs) I was like, that is genius. (laughs) That is really smart. That's amazing. She's like, um, so we're going to open up to audience questions in a minute, but before we do that, you know, I wanted to ask, this was something Karina and I talked about a lot. We are ostensibly not the target demo for YA television. I mean, I'm a f- I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I'm just saying, when, for me. when people, when people green light YA shows, they don't look at pictures of you and I and go, that's the demographic. Because they're we wrong. Wanna hit. <laughs> we want a 34 year old white gay male to watch this show. But I do watch the show, and I find so much in there that appeals to me. And I'm curious if you could each maybe speak to why you think it is that these shows and these characters and these worlds appeal to people who are not in what is perceived to be the demographic for these shows. I think there is some actual biological thing that, that is, and I'm not a biologist, 
but Get then, off this panel. <laughs> we brought you here because you're a doctor. <laughs> but in terms of whatever groovy stuff is going on with your synapses at that time, like that's why, like the music I listen to on Friday night is like, it's all, it's high school music. Like nothing is going to make me cry as much as high school music and no offense to my husband, but like, I don't, I don't ever feel, I don't feel the same highs and lows in our marriage as I did in high school. Yeah. And I think Thank there's God. just, I mean, <laughs> <Jesus. laughs> be like really, yeah, it was never good. Uh, but I think it's like, you relate to that time. That was sort of like the most special emotional time. And it's so relatable. I mean, I think we've all been saying that again and again, and it's like, it's a very honest, true time. And so I will watch that stuff. And the same for why books like I feel like and even the term way which I think we all struggle with it's like it doesn't quite feel right because it feels like it's condescending but like some of the best books I've read recently have been YA books like those are you know because everything is so people are at a turning point I think and maybe the reason we watch them in our 30s and 40s is that you're at a different sort of turning point then and you're looking back and you're thinking about what was it that formed me and looking back on that time either with sentimentality or regret or just enjoying that bittersweet feeling that you just kind of don't have as you get older. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. It's like the experience of firsts, I think, is so... And and not just the obvious first, first kiss or first time you have sex, but I think, like, you know, that pain of, like, a friend who's betrayed you or the first time you feel truly isolated and alone or all those feelings, you know, you you continue in your life and, and you feel those things again and again. You get your heart broken a million times, but you become you know, a little bit, like, calloused and not immune to it, but, like, it hurts a little less each time. First cut is the deepest. And <laughs> that's right. Thank you, Cheryl Crow. Um, <laughs> very pivotal in high school. Um, but I think, um, yeah, I think to go back and relive that time, I think it's also an outlet probably for, like, what you feel as an adult that you don't necessarily get to express in the same way anymore. And you get to kind of go back and relive that. And there's probably something very, like Anna said, cathartic about it. Yeah, I, I think... You know, for me, I've often go, why am I so drawn to this time period? I think for me, I didn't come out until I was uh, 23, and so I was in the closet in high school, and I felt like I was just watching it. Like, I didn't feel like I was participating in it. And so I think for me, there's a lot of wish fulfillment of being able to go back and explore that time period and kind of rewrite it for myself. And I I don't know if that's also helping what other adults go through. Like, there's something about going back to a painful experience or a painful time in your life and and seeing it reflected that I think is healing. And so I think a lot of people seek that out from shows and books about why. Also a time of such freedom. Like I think about it like like you're saying, I don't know, someone, we were on set the other day and somebody brought up the Horde tour, which was something that was... I lost my shit. I was like, the Horde tour? I was like, I have not thought of the Horde tour. I'm like, someone put on Blues Traveler Hook right now. I literally got on eBay and I'm like, I'm buying a shirt. I never even went to the Horde tour. I don't know why I was freaking out, but I was just like... Oh, I was like, it was such a good time. And I was like, oh, you could just get in your car and like blast the Counting Crows. And, you know, and I was like, was Rusted Root on the Horde Tour? Because tell me they were. I'm like, of course they were. But it just felt like, oh, you yeah, seem like more of a Lilith fan. I know. I know. I also never Not usually exclusive. I am very Lilith fair, you guys. I was super Lilith fair. Um, but yes, totally. And But all of that, it just feels like freedom. And like you have your whole life ahead of you. And it's like summer and you're driving. And like, when do you ever feel that way now? Now you're I like, still, like, when I hear a song that was on the mix tape, or the mix CD tape, I'm not that mm-hmm. old. When the, I hear a song that we was are, on the mix CD, tapes, the mix CD that, that I put in my car the first, like when I first got my driver's license, 
I literally, I could tell you right now the 12 songs that were on there. And when I hear one of them now, I'm like, I'm free. <laughs> of course. It's like, it is that, it's that feeling of like freedom and of just like. Impossibility. Yes. It's so, now you're like, <laughs> car seats and there's a lot going on. <laughs> no free. Oh, boy, no. <laughs> well, uh, we're going to throw to the audience yes. for, for questions. So let's just, if you have a question, just raise your hand. And I mean, you can break the ice. Who wants to be the first bold question asker yes right over there just i think stand up and shout i believe yes that's a good question rebecca knows which one she'd pick no there's a lot though um oh, i really i just have you guys read this book i'll give you the sun it's, I mean, like all of her novels, I really, I really. It's by Jandy Nelson. Yeah, Jandy Nelson. Write She's it down. Amazing. She's incredible. Everything is going to change. Um, I'll give you the sun. And then there's this, she, she also wrote this book that I actually like a little bit more called The Sky is Everywhere that I'm, I just am obsessed with and I have a whole game plan. I would really love to be able to do it someday. She's brilliant. That would be my pick. I have two picks. One is called Like the Red Panda by Andrea Siegel, which I love um, and have tried to get her to let me adapt, but now she's a fancy writer and can adapt it herself, although I don't know why she hasn't yet. Um, and there's another book. If anyone knows this book, actually, this is a pro- I can't remember the name. I read it when I was a teenager. I have no idea who it was by, but I'm just going to tell you a few key things. If anyone knows this book, please let me know. I'm dying to adapt it. Okay, it had to do with Frank Zappa. It had to do with, um, it was a group of kids. They called themselves the nonchalance. They were like, we're nonchalant, and we call ourselves the nonchalance. And there was something really disturbing about pink bellies, where I think like guys like hit them on the stomach and then had sex with them, which I know sounds really weird. Um, what is this book? I don't know, it was oh my so god! Good. This sounds like a nightmare. And when I, when, Sure, it wasn't a dream. No, it wasn't a dream because I, I it, it was, yeah, it wasn't a dream. I read it when I lived in Dallas, but I moved to Connecticut for high school, and I remember I was really depressed about moving to Connecticut. But I thought something about like partying in the woods reminded me of this book, and I was like, maybe we'll just be like in vans, like super nonchalant, down by like a creek, getting pink bellies. And I don't know, I don't even know exactly. So if anyone knows this book, just let me know after because. I think it'd really make it feel good, young adult now. <laughs> Movie adaption. Very fault in our stars. Uh, there's a book called uh, The Age of Miracles. Did anyone read that one? Well, you should. It's really good. It's really good. Uh, this is showing. I don't read that much. Oh, that is it's okay. okay. That no is okay. shame. I'm with you. It's fine. Uh, it's okay. Um, any other questions? Yes. called Faking It. You can watch it on Hulu. You can watch all three seasons. But I think she speaks to a fact that there, it is not a predominant genre. Yeah, there's not a lot of it. I mean, I think MTV between Awkward and Faking It was trying to kind of explore that. Uh, They're not anymore. So the the answer then is, yes, there probably is a market for it because there isn't any right now. It's about finding the right one, probably. I mean, would you, do you think it has something to do with just, honestly, like a 30-minute versus an hour that networks are hungrier for hour-longs in that way? Or... Hmm. I think that 
Um, it's a more it's it's probably a more marketable mm-hmm. format. Um, our show was we it wasn't really a dramedy because it was a half hour. We called it a comma, um, <laughs> um, and it was a, I loved it as a creator to be yeah. able to be funny but also go to a real emotional place. I think there should be a lot more of it. I think it's there should be more shows like that, and I think you see them more on the on the streaming side. But um, uh, I think that's a format that's evolving. Mm-hmm. Uh, the half hour kind of dramatic comedy. And I find also, and maybe Liz, you can speak to this, but with the advent of streaming platforms becoming so huge, it's giving creators the opportunity to almost find their own time limits for how they want to be telling yeah. shows. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. But I will say, I think... Agree. Young adult, young adult comedy without the heart and emotion becomes Saved by the Bell. Like, it, right. it gets very thin very quickly. Because Mark um, Paul Gosler is in the building. I don't know if you know. <laughs> yeah, I saw him before. Iconic and legendary. Not that Saved by the Bell wasn't a great show. I just don't yeah. think it was Mark a Paul paragon of sentimentality. Yeah. We're just talking about his beard now. <laughs> it's fine. Sorry, I had another moment where I got excited about a moment from my youth. And, oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, you, there was another question over here. Yeah. What's amazing to me about that is that, not to let writers off the hook at all, but I do find, and I'm sure you guys have found this also, we never get notes on violence. We never get notes on something is too bloody or too violent in any way. It's usually, it's always sex. And like even the most mild forms of sex, we get the notes on to cut it back and to not show this and to not show that. And in terms of what you can say about a person or what you can imply about a person, but violence seems to just get like... I wrote an episode of TV last year. I work on The Originals, which is a very violent show. It was literally an episode that started with a man throwing a bag of heads, human heads, at somebody else. And we got a note about um, the heads be to prettier? cut, cut, <laughs> cut be wider prettier. on a gay kiss. Cut, yeah. like, be a little further away if we're going to go as long as And it's as been like go. that for at least 15 years. You know, it's weird. And we said no, for the record. <laughs> <laughs> Woohoo! But yeah, it's true. I mean, you yeah. people are still. I think uh, somebody said, one, some TV executive said, like, we are still secretly a society of Quakers, <laughs> and it's a little bit true. People get really up in arms about sex, and I think probably even more so when you're talking about teenagers. Yeah, but uh, I think the flip side of it is when I look, when I watch a video game and see how violent they are. I mean, just how desensitized we are to violence. I don't want sex to go to that place either, you know? Like, you don't want sexuality to be the place where it is, like, it is being glorified and... and, and not glorified. It's glorious. But, like, that it's, <laughs> it's become so desensitized that, that we're, we find ourselves in the same place with sexuality where we are with violence. So it is, you know, it's tricky. Yeah, absolutely. Any other questions? Yes. What? 
California Everyone goes University. to California University. <laughs> Brenda goes to Minnesota for one episode and then comes back because she needs to, to California be on the University. Show. California I've often found it's funny how many shows like never define where you are in a school year. They're just like, yeah. it's just kind of always yeah. fall. <laughs> 90210 was, they were like juniors tw- two seasons yeah. and yeah. the seniors two seasons. and yeah. Vampire Diaries did that too. Yeah. I'm faking we had an interesting challenge, which is they, they bought the show as a companion piece to Awkward. They wanted to have the show have time to grow, so they said, make them sophomores. I said, okay, I'll make them sophomores. Then they immediately said we are moving our demographic up. We don't want them to be in high school anymore. I'm like, they're sophomores in high school. You told me to do that. So the show, like, you know, one of the characters had her own apartment this last season and like they all had jobs and like it, it was no, it was never a high school show. And that's kind of what they, they, they push. They're like, just push these adult themes and these are things adults would go to. And it's kind of absurd. I, I would say that, um, you know, if it is something, if you're creating your own work to keep in mind, that, you know, you always want to think about how it can grow in television. You know, nobody gets 100 episodes anymore, but you do want to make sure you have enough real estate to tell stories with before you have to figure a big problem like that out. Anna, you worked on Dawson's Creek in the college years, yeah? Yeah, I'm sorry. She took it right to, <laughs> Anna took it right to the end. Oh, that cult. That cult that Kelly joined. <laughs> Cults are was it, was it harder to sort of find stories in that sphere than... In the high school world? Yeah, definitely. I think, because we're like, realistically, are, why are they all still hanging out? Like, why can't they move on? Like, These why people should hate each other. Living with grams, like, what's happening? Yeah, it was, it was very difficult. And I think we were very conscious of that. And also, like, that's also when social media was just starting to happen. And we were already getting feedback of, like, come on, make it stop. You know, And but I think, I will say, in the defense of that, I feel like, most shows today have a shelf life. Like, we found that even, like, with Being Human, the show I did for sci-fi, it was just on for four years because, realistically, you're starting a show where people are supposedly at a really interesting point in their lives and you want to see that story. And at a certain point, any close-knit group of people like that should move on to something else. So I think, you know, it it is definitely true for teens. You want to see them grow up and go do something else, but I think it's true for adults, too. Like, how long are they going to be in this particular situation? I think we had another. Yes, in the back. Um, in terms of like, creating the Yeah, it was interesting. I was We just did the casual panel, and T- Tara Linbar was speaking to this with Laura, and we were talking about, like, teen tropes, which, you know, were all, I mean, I've written them, like, you kind of... The makeover episode. See, oh, I hate... <laughs> oh, my God, a good makeover montage. The first time, you're like, it's so cute, they're changing to music, and then it's like, you're writing it, like, the fifth time, and you're like, fucking makeover montage. Um, but um, it's interesting because... Her character on Casual, she gets to be all those people in some ways. I think instead of trying to kind of classify, I don't know. I, I think that 
going back to like what a real teenager feels like, I mean, even teenagers, I think back to people I went to high school with who I would have classified as like popular athlete that dated the other popular athlete that everybody thought was fantastic. Well, that girl completely hated herself and didn't think of herself the way that other people perceived her. And so it's like, even when you've got this external stamp or trope as we're calling it, I think to actually not have to delineate characters like that, to, to just let them be all things. You know, you can externally be seen some way and you can internally feel like a mess. And some days you feel confident and other days you don't want to talk to anybody. And it's like, you don't have to kind of be just one thing. And I don't know, I think that that's, I think that's helpful. But I also think, you know, it can be hard. I mean, I'm using network TV as an example, but like, I feel like people do want those stamps and definitions. You know, it's like, that's the bad girl. So she looks like a bad girl or the, I don't know. I mean, I remember on Life Unexpected, it was like, she's a foster kid. And they're like, she looks kind of homeless. Could she look cuter? And I'm like, they're like, could she have like cuter clothes? And you're like, okay. I mean, she's a homeless foster kid, but sure. Like, she can be the best she dressed looks homeless. on the show. Can she be an, homeless. Can she be an aspirational homeless foster kid? And she was. <laughs> Give her a What homeless hat. kid has that many, you know, cute yeah. beanies? <laughs> Rebecca, what have you found, though? Because yeah. I would love to hear from the YA novel world. I mean, what do you think about that? I mean, I, I really feel like it's about, as, as a writer in a group or alone, spending the time to really get to know your characters, like really get to know them. Because as Liz was saying, like nobody is one thing. And so I think like I, when, before I, I write any book, like I spend a lot of time um, just kind of writing, writing, writing through characters, like their top five fears, their top five aspirations, just so I really feel like I get a sense of who they are as a person and I can place them in different situations and have them respond how they would respond because ultimately like we're not writing a stereotype we're writing you know we're writing like jerry or aisha or whatever we're writing people and people are many different things so i think it's really about taking the time to just get to yeah to get to know your characters that's one thing that we've like i said like we've only been in our room for two weeks but we've been spending a lot of time on that and that's something that i'm really grateful for that as a room that's really important to us i also think that you know, what I, what I try to do in my work when I run up against that is make the character aware of the tropes. And if the character, you know, because they live in the world that I live in, and we all know the tropes. So if it is that hoodie-wearing girl, let her know that she's a cliche, and what is she doing to react against that? Like, you know, you don't have to just make the cliche character. Let them be aware that they're in that space. And it's treating the teen character the same way you would an adult character. I mean, you would never, like, introduce... I don't know. It's like you wouldn't introduce Michaela Watkins, for instance. Oh, she's like a kind of frazzled person who's just gotten a divorce. It's like she wouldn't come in, like, freaking, like, Kramer on Seinfeld. Like, you know what I mean? And she's, like, dropping her purse and doesn't know what to... You know, it's like you just wouldn't... She would never walk up in, like, a hoodie and dark eyeliner because she's having a bad day. It's like she gets to still be a person who has all those things happening. So it's like treat your teenagers just like people, not like... Again, it's the same kind of what we're talking about with the phrase YA. Or It's like... Don't talk down to them. Don't don't diminish their characters. But I do think that it's like the difference between stereotype and archetype, mm-hmm. because I do think that you know when you're especially in TV, you're trying to build this like palette of characters that you can pull from, and they all have to have a unique perspective, and and so you do kind of go to okay, well she's the cynical one, and she you know he's the mm-hmm. you know the all star or whatever. You have to kind of start in this archetypical place, and then it's how do you 
how do you flesh them out in a way that's fresh and new and doesn't feel like you've seen it a million times? A girl across yeah. the creek. <laughs> I need Just a girl to stop. across the creek. I need to stop putting on extra eyeliner when I'm having a bad day. <laughs> um, we have to wrap it up. Thank you guys so much for being here. Thank you, Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you to you guys. And if anybody has not read Rebecca's book and would like to... We... Now leaving Nerdist.com.